So last week we started looking at the mind-only school or Chitta Matra. So let's do a little reflection on how they explain things. So imagine that you're going back to your room at the end of the day, ready to go to bed. When you walk into your room, you see familiar things like your bed, and maybe a bedside table, clock, lamp, a few personal items. So when you see these things, does it seem that they have appeared due to the ripening of an imprint in your mind at the same time that you see them? Or does it seem like those things were there in your room before you walked in, just waiting for you to walk in and see them? So most probably, it seems like they were there already before you walked in, that they exist out there, not just something coming from your mind. So the mind-only school, the Chitta Mantra school, says for ordinary beings, this is how things appear to us. They seem to be out there, external to our mind, independent of our mind. But this is a false appearance, an illusion. Somewhat similar to when we have dreams. And when we're dreaming, we see dream people and dream places and dream objects. But they seem like they're real. They're really out there. And we react emotionally. We get happy and excited or angry or frightened. So in a similar way, when we're awake during our waking times, the things we see like people and other objects, they seem real out there, independent of our mind. That's how they seem to exist, and we buy into that. And then we react emotionally. We have attachment to those things that appear attractive, aversion, to those things that appear unattractive, unpleasant. And ignorance, just believing things exist the way they appear. And so with these afflictions in our mind, we act, we create karma, and that karma in turn causes us to remain in samsara continues circling in samsara. So the Chittamatrans say that if we meditate on how all the things that appear to our mind are just coming from our mind, the ripening of imprints in our mind causes both the appearance of objects, things we perceive, as well as the minds that perceive them, seeing, hearing, smelling, and so forth. So all of these things arise from imprints in our mind. So if we meditate on that, that can help us to pacify our afflictions, especially attachment, aversion, and so forth. 
and that way we'll have less suffering, create less negative karma. And if we wish to become enlightened, to become Buddhas, then we have to realize this, this truth, this reality, that all the things appearing to us are just coming from our mind and not really out there, externally existing as they appear. So last time um, we started looking at this slide that uh, gives the divisions of the two truths, ultimate truths and uh, conventional truths. So we just started on ultimate truths and how there's, according to this school, Chittamatra, um, two types of ultimate truth. The first one is something we're familiar with. It's um, common to all the other schools. Um, subtle selflessness of persons, the emptiness of a self-supporting, substantially existent person. So that's one thing all the Buddhist schools agree on. <laughs> that kind of a self, that kind of a person, uh, doesn't exist at all. That's the kind of self that seems like a boss, a master of our aggregates, our body and mind, and controlling our body and mind, controlling our life, and so on. So even though there seems to be that kind of a self somewhere inside of us, it's false. It doesn't really exist. Okay, so we've encountered that before. And then this school also asserts a subtle selflessness of phenomena. They don't assert a core selflessness of phenomena. It's kind of funny. <laughs> they only have one selflessness of phenomena, but anyway, they call it subtle selflessness of phenomena. And there are two uh, examples of this, or two ways of explaining this. Um, the first one is the emptiness of a form and the mind apprehending it being different natures. So that's the one we've been mostly focusing on um, what we just looked at in the meditation. When we see an object like a table, um, even though it seems to be out there of a different nature than our mind, the mind perceiving it, that's a false appearance. It doesn't really exist that way. And in reality, the table that we see and the mind that sees it both arise at the same time from this imprint or seed in the mind. And so it, they say that the, the, the table, the object we see, and the mind that's perceiving it are, are one nature or the same nature because they both arise at the same time from the same cause. They abide together, they cease together. So that's the meaning of being one nature. Um, so, yeah, so this is one meaning of selflessness of phenomena, the emptiness of that false appearance that objects of our perception are of a different nature than the mind. Um, so regarding this, we, we might think, um, like for example, uh, we just take our computer <laughs> and we think, but I bought this computer at a shop or Amazon. It was delivered by Amazon. And I carry it around with me. I bring it here and there and I, and I use it. Um, and other people see it too. Other people see my computer too. So how can it be that my, that computer is just something coming from my mind, projected by my mind? Yeah, so this is a doubt that we <laughs> naturally have. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so in um, in Geshe Jama Tekshok's uh, commentary, um, somebody asked a question about this. Like they they use the example of a tonka. So we could also use the example of you know, the Maitreya Tonka here on the wall. Um, so he said that saying that things arise from imprints in our mind um, doesn't rule out other causes and conditions. For example, the people who make things. So using the example of the Tonka, he said um, the Chittamatrans say that when the tanka appears to your visual consciousness, the tanka that you see and your visual consciousness come from one substantial cause, the, the imprint or the seed in your mind. But they don't say that the tanka is mind. The tanka has cooperative causes as well, such as the artist and so on. So the tanka was painted by an artist. It wasn't that our mind just created the tanka. <laughs> I I'm, I'm not such a good artist. I couldn't create it. <laughs> so there was an artist that painted the tanka. And likewise, our computer. You know, there were people in a factory, probably in China, um, you know, working and putting together all these different parts and using different machinery and tools and so on. So. The computer was made by people in a factory. Um, so they're not denying that. Shudamatra is not denying that. And then Geshe-la went on to say, an artist, going back to the tanka, an artist first paints tanka, and then when 10 people look at it without investigation and analysis, one tanka is seen in common by all 10 people. And this has arisen due to collective karma. So, you know, everybody who has the, the same karma to see the tanka will see a tanka. And it seems as if we're, we're all seeing the same tanka. You know, we, we have that impression that there's just one tanka there on the wall and we're all seeing the same tanka. That's how it seems if we don't investigate. But he says, but when we check up to find out if the tanka that appears to me is the same as the tanka that appears to you, we discover that each person has their own view according to the imprint in their mind. Yeah, so we're, we're all seeing our own tanka. And the artist, the artist who painted the tanka, he also had his, you know, due to imprints in his mind, you know, he had, um, an appearance of a tanka that he was that he was painting and so on. So everybody who looks at the tanka will see their own version of the tanka, which is arising from the imprint on their mind. And if we all agree, if we all say, "Oh yeah, it's a tanka, it's a it's a maitreya tanka," then that's because we have the collective karma. We have created the karma to be able to see a maitreya tanka. And if there was somebody who didn't create that karma, what, you know, who didn't have that particular karma, they wouldn't see a tanka of Maitreya. They might see something else. Or if you just think about, if you bring one of the cats in here, you bring Upeka in here, for example, and say, look, Upeka, this is Maitreya. <laughs> what do you think Upeka is going to see? <laughs> I mean, just some blur. I don't think cats have very good eyesight. And so, yeah. And, and also the, the Chittamatrans use this example, which I think is in the scriptures, um, about, um, you know, a container of, of liquid. Mm -hmm. And human beings, because of our karma, we see it as water. It appears as water to us. But if there was a hungry ghost around, the hungry ghost would look and would see something really disgusting, like blood and pus and yuck. <laughs> and if a deva, uh, who has much better karma than, than us, if a deva looked at that, the deva would see nectar, something incredibly blissful and divine and wonderful. So, so they say that, they use that as, a, as an example of how, yeah, depending on karma, 
different beings will see things differently. And there's no, they, they say there's, there isn't really a common object. This is what one of my teachers explained to me. If you try to say, well, what is it really? <laughs> What's the real thing there that we're all seeing in a different way? There isn't, yeah? There isn't a common object that we are all seeing. But it's just each of us, each person, each being will have their own imprint in their mind, their own karmic seed in their mind, causing them to see the object in a, in a different way. Can I ask a question about this? Huh? Can I ask a question? Yeah. Is this actually just the physical seeing, or is it also our projections and interpretations and stories and labels and everything that we add on to things? I think it's even the just the seeing. Just the physical yeah. seeing. Just the okay. instantaneous appearance of that object to your mind, even before you start blah, 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 blah yeah. Um, just yeah, the raw the raw data. <laughs> I think that's that's how they would explain it. Would the Yamaka say there's a common object? Um, I don't know if they if they even use that kind of language. Mm -hmm. I mean, they definitely say that things are dependent on our mind, but they don't they don't agree with the Chitamatrans. Um, Madhyamaka does say there are external objects. They don't agree that objects are of the same nature or same entity as the mind. They don't agree with that. But whether they say there's a common object or not, I don't know. We can. If you say external object, it makes it seem like there is an object there independent of anybody's mind. Yeah, that's not the mean of, meaning of external object. Um, external. Well, I mean, that term mainly comes up in this school. The term external object or external existence is mainly this school that, that talks about it because they deny it, they refute it. Um, and the meaning of an external object is um, an object that is of a different nature, different entity than the mind perceiving it, according to how they explain the way, the way... But yeah, I mean, Madhyamika, we'll, we'll, we'll get to them eventually. So let's leave <laughs> them aside for now. Um, yeah. And, and we, we can think of other examples as well, like uh, food, you know, certain types of food. Um, if that food is there on the plate, like tofu, for example, you know, some people really love tofu. So if there's a dish of tofu there, people will go, oh, yummy, yum, tofu, I love it. But somebody else, like especially somebody who's a meat eater and loves meat, you know, like big, fat, juicy steaks, if they look at tofu, they'll go, ooh, can you eat that stuff? Yeah, so, yeah, and music and art and so on, you know, people experience these objects differently mm -hmm. the same object for one person is a source of delight and pleasure for some somebody else it's a source of great irritation and displeasure and people also yeah the same person will appear so differently to different people some person some people see that person as wonderful fantastic i love him i love her other people go oh drives me nuts I can't stand them <laughs> so it's the same person but depending on our mind we see them differently and so they say if things were externally existent then everybody would see things the same way everybody would like the same person the same food everybody would dislike the same person the same food and so on but that's not the case so it's 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 something to think about if you cause to think. Um, and then the second example of the subtle selflessness of phenomena, I don't think we talked about this one. Uh, the emptiness of a form existing by way of its own characteristics as a base for the term form um, so 
yeah, I think we did just a little bit talk about it last time. So for example, um, a computer, when we see a computer, um, as long as we're ordinary beings, we haven't realized emptiness, then the computer appears to exist by way of its own characteristics as the basis or the referent of the term computer. And this seems to be something innate and instinctive, inborn. Um, so everybody, everybody has it as soon as we see an object. And apparently, even if it's an object we've never seen before, like a brand new thing, we don't even know the name of it, but we still see it as if it, it, it is somehow, by its own characteristics, the basis for a name almost like the name is inherent in that object. So the reality is names, terms are just adventitious. They are added by human beings, by our mind. Conceptual mind comes up with names of things and just applies names, names to things. But the names of things, the, the terms and the names of things do not uh, naturally uh, abide in the objects that they denote. But ordinary sentient beings who haven't realized emptiness do have this tendency to see things as if they were the reference of their names by way of their own characteristics. And I was thinking about last when we were doing the last school, Subtrontica school, and going through the different kinds of inferences, and one type of inference, I think it was called inference of renown, that, um, mm -hmm. you know, take any object and it's suitable to be given such and such name because it's an object of thought. So the idea is that anything that is an object of thought can be named, can be given a name, whatever name you want, that's fine. <laughs> um, I use the example of the truck, which I thought was brown, but Venerable Semke insists it's gray. But anyway, that big grayish brown, brownish gray truck <laughs> in the Abbey parking lot, um, you know, it's suitable to be given the name Haroldina because it's an object of thought. And in a way, this is something we all know. Because, for example, babies, we get, you know, a new baby comes into the world and we get to name it. Or we get a new pet, a new cat, a new dog, a new parakeet. We get to name it. Okay. And scientists discover some new star or new planet or new solar system. And they can name it. <laughs> so we kind of know that, that we can give names to things. And so, so I was wondering, you know, how does that compare with what the Chita Matran uh, are talking about. And I, I think, I'm not sure, but I think that what they're talking about is something more subtle. So even though we know we can give names to things, but I think there's this innate tendency to feel that things already have some kind of inherent name within them. Now I'll just read something from... Um, Appearance and Reality, Guy Newland's book, um, where he's talking about this. So he says, this isn't just conceptual consciousnesses that are affected by the false appearance of phenomena as established by way of their own character as the reference of names. The new, oh, sorry, the raw preconceptual appearance of a flag, he's using the analogy of a flag, we see a flag, uh, to an eye consciousness. So as soon as we just see a flag, is already mixed with an appearance of the flag as, as established by way of its own character as the referent of a name. The mind-only schools say that there is a seed that produces the appearance of a flag, Another seed that produces its appearance as being a different entity from the mind seeing it. And a third seed that ripens at the same time that produces the flag's appearance 
as established by way of its own character, as the referent of its name. So three different seeds arising at the same time. <laughs> One causes the appearance of the flag, another causes the appearance of the flag being a different entity from the mind perceiving it, and a third seed causing um, the appearance of it being a referent of its, of its name by its own character. And then he goes on to say, the mistaken appearance and mistaken conception that phenomena are established by way of their own character as the reference of names occurs even with regard to newly encountered phenomena for which we have no names. Without a name for something, we already have a sense of its being naturally suitable to be the basis of a name. Thus, the ignorant apprehension of phenomena as established by way of their own character as the reference of names affects every sentient being, even those such as animals and babies who do not use terminology. I wondered about that with animals, because they don't normally have language, but maybe conceptually they do have their own kind of names for things. <laughs> They know Not their like, own name. Huh? They know their own name. Yeah, but when they look at objects, do they... I mean, this is what he's saying. It's pretty amazing. When a cat looks at an object... Cat food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, but, but having this sense that it's it's got its own name from its own side, I mean, that's... But yeah, I think name doesn't necessarily have to be something spoken, you know, a verbalization. It could just be a some kind of mental name. You see that cats and dogs have the intelligence of a three or four-year-old child, depending on the breed. There's different tests that they've done. So I think like what a three or four-year-old child can do in terms of labeling or naming things is quite a lot. Mm. And I was just thinking about my own experience and how, you know, if I see something that I've never seen before, my my first kind of uh, reaction is, what is it? What is it called? You know, I want to know the name of that object. And that, maybe that's a manifestation of this tendency. It must have a name. It must have a name. And that name wasn't just imputed, but it's coming from the side of the object. Maybe that's what they're talking about. I think it doesn't depend on language, yeah. the babies and the animals. So it's more than just name, because whenever we think of name, it's a word. Yeah. So it's maybe more like a concept. Yeah, it's probably much more than that, but <laughs> I don't know. Function. Yeah. Or for animals, they would label or categorize friend or enemy. That's mm -hmm. their. Yeah, I mean, they definitely have some way of distinguishing different yeah. objects. Yeah. They have a different way of distinguishing a dog, a big, fierce-looking dog, from a little chipmunk, you know. So they have their own kind of, <laughs> somehow, conceptualization of different objects. So maybe that's what they mean by names. Terms, names, yeah. Okay, so, um, yeah, I was, I was reading... In, in volume seven, which just came out, there's a, a bit of a bit of information about the yoga chars called it's a little bit about each of the four schools and and so in here it says that where is it? Um, it says it's very good to study the yoga chars views. Yeah, studying the yoga chara, well, she calls it yoga chara, cheetah mantra. Uh, view, studying their view is a good stepping stone that broadens our view and facilitates understanding Madhyamaka views later. Vibhashikas and Sutrantika only speak about selflessness of persons, whereas yoga chara adds the selflessness of phenomena. In doing so, it spurs us to examine not only how the person exists, but also how the aggregates, which are the basis of designation of the person, exist. 
in asserting that there are no external objects and that phenomena and their apprehending consciousnesses are one nature. Yogacara draws us into examining the role of the mind, the role the mind plays in the existence of phenomena. Although subject and object being one nature is refuted by the prasangikas, contemplating the Yogacara view enables us to see that the appearance of objectively existing external objects to our sense consciousnesses are false and that things exist in relation to the mind. This approach reduces clinging to attractive and repulsive objects because these are seen as illusory. They are not objective external objects as they appear to be, but are one nature with a mind perceiving them. Furthermore, the Yogacara assertion that phenomena are empty of existing by their own characteristics as the reference of terms stimulates us to explore the role of language and concepts in the existence of phenomena. So understanding these two these two Yogacara approaches to the selflessness of phenomena prepares us for the Madhyamaka view. So it's worthwhile, even if it's difficult to understand. Also in this book, uh, it, she mentions, or they mentioned that, um, remember the Vaibhashikas and the Satrantikas talked about heartless particles, mainly mm-hmm. Vaibhashika. You know, that there are tiny particles that can't be broken down any further. And they don't even have sides like east and west, top and bottom. And so that apparently Satranta agrees with that as well. So Yogacara um, refutes that. They, they say, oh, that's, that's impossible. If there were part, particles that didn't have sides, they wouldn't be able to join together and make large objects. So it's actually the Yogacara uh, philosophers that, you know, came up with that <laughs> and refuted that. And Madhyamaga agrees with that as well. There, there are some worthwhile things in this school. And also in the text uh, by Jetson Shuki Gelson that this class is based on, it says that, according to this school, emptinesses are non-affirming negatives. Do you remember what that means? What's a non-affirming negative? It's saying there's nothing in its place. It's not saying there's anything in its place. Yeah, so something is refuted or negated. Nothing is affirmed in its place. It's just a mere negation of, of things. So I guess that's another controversial topic that different schools talk about. So then conventional truths. Um, there are two types of conventional truths. So conventional truths are everything that's not emptiness, everything that's not in emptiness. So they can be divided into Um, Other powered natures, which are all impermanent phenomena, all impermanent things are other powered natures. And then um, existent imputational natures. Um, Do you remember what those are? Permanent things other than emptiness. So all permanent phenomena that are not emptinesses. That includes like non-compounded space and all conceptual images and absences like the absence of an elephant in the room, true cessations. What do you think is more? Do you think there are more impermanent phenomena or more permanent phenomena? Which would be a greater number? I know what they say, but I know what I think. Hmm? Permanent. You think there's more permanent things? Anyone think there's more impermanent things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Geshe Dhamma Tikshuk, he once said there are more permanent phenomena than impermanent phenomena. And I was surprised to hear that, you know, because mm-hmm. well, all these things. impermanent things, all these things. But then if you think about it, 
permanent things, all the mental images, all the conceptual images that we have of everything, and all the absences that, we, that there are, like the absence of an elephant and the absence of a tiger and the absence of a giraffe in this room and so on. So you could, you know, you could come up with a lot of permanent phenomena. Each um, impermanent object has its own emptiness. Yeah, its yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if anybody's really counting. <laughs> They're all uncountable, so. Okay, so the next slide um, is a little bit of um, slight digression. Because um, there's these terms, and there's this these, these kind of terms that come up, especially in the Mahayana schools. And they can be really mind-bending and frustrating and confusing and so on. And um, so I just thought to take a look at these. So this chart, which I made, um, says the meaning of terms describing the mode of existence of phenomena, Mahayana schools. Okay, so the first... The first column has the, the different terms like established by way of its own character, truly established, existing from its own side, existing inherently. And then we have the mind-only school, Chitta Mantra school, how they interpret these terms. So established by way of its own character means it's not merely imputed by thought, but exists from its own side. Okay, so it's, yeah, not just imputed. And the next one, truly established, it could be called truly established or truly existing. Um, the same, it has the same meaning. So truly existing or truly established also means not merely imputed by thought, but existing from its own side. The third one is existing from its own side. And what that means is the imputed object when sought is findable. So, for example, a person. Uh, a person is an imputed object. And if we search for the person, we will find something. We'll find something we can point to as being the person. And that's the meaning of existing from its own side. And existing inherently has the same meaning. That you can find the imputed object when it's when it's looked for. So let's just stick with mind only school. Don't look at the others. <laughs> They're coming later, but but it's helpful to know this. So then this chart um, has these terms on the on the left side, and then the three natures: other powered natures. Those are impermanent phenomena. Thoroughly established nature. Those are the emptinesses, the ultimate truths. The selflessnesses and then imputational natures uh existent ones these are all permanent things other than emptiness so those are the three natures so everything that exists is one of those three so then what is their mode of existing the first one is truly existent or truly established so what does that mean again not merely imputed by thought, but existing from its own side. Yes. Other powered natures, yes, they are truly existing. So that means our bodies are truly existing. Our minds are truly existing. Our computers are truly existing. So all impermanent phenomena are truly existing. And then thoroughly established, like emptiness, that's also truly existing. Not merely imputed by thought, but really there, existing from its own side. But imputational, no. So permanent phenomena other than emptiness, they are not truly existing because they are just imputed by thought. They're just imputations by thought. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm putting this up partly because in the text, in Jetson Chukit Gelson's text, there were some sentences talking about this terminology for example saying other powered phenomena are truly existing but they are not true <laughs> so to make sense of that sentence you have to 
understand what these terms mean. So the next term down is true, and I don't have, it's not explained here, but I, I did explain it earlier. Does anyone remember what true means? Just true, not truly existent, but true as opposed to false. Anyone remember what that means? It exists as it appears. Huh? It exists as it yeah. appears. Yeah, the way it appears, the way it exists, match. They're compatible. It exists the way it appears. So, other powered phenomena are not true. Why? Why are they not true? They're truly existing. Why shouldn't they, shouldn't, shouldn't they be true as well? <laughs> yeah, this, these terminologies. Anyway, the reason they're not true is because when they appear to ordinary beings, they appear to be externally existing, out there, all by themselves, not depending on the mind, not just coming from our imprints in the mind. That's how they appear, but that's not how they exist. So they're not true. They're false. But thoroughly established natures, those are true. So the way they appear and the way they exist are compatible. They do match. And imputational natures are also not true. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe they also appear externally existing. I'm not sure. But anyway, only thoroughly established natures are really true. Okay, the next term is existing by way of its own characteristics. What does that mean? Same as truly existing. Not merely imputed by thought, but existing from their own side. So yeah, so it's the same. Uh, which phenomena exist by way of their own characteristics? Other powered natures, yes. Thoroughly established natures, yes. But imputational natures, no. They don't exist by way of their own characteristics. And the, the, the fourth one, the last one, is I put two together. They're different terms, but they have the same meaning. Existing inherently and existing from their own side. What does that mean? Imputed object. When sought is findable. When sought is findable. You can find it when you look for it. Yes, yes, yes. So all three natures, all three natures exist inherently and exist from their own side. So according to this school, whatever exists, even the imputational natures, are inherently existing and existing from their own side because they think that if things didn't exist inherently, if they didn't exist from their own side, they wouldn't exist at all. So they have to have some kind of way of existing, even imputational natures. Yeah, so this school then, well, in fact, all, all the schools, except for Prasangika, say that whatever exists is inherently existing, exists inherently. They, they feel ha things have to have their, some kind of existence from their own side, not just imputed, not just labeled by the mind, which is what Prasangika says. So, what prasangikas say is really scary for them. They think that's, that's nihilistic to say that things are merely imputed by the mind. So, no, 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 no. Hmm? So mind only doesn't have the, the discrimination that uh, findable under analysis, it's not findable. The, when it comes to thoroughly established, they are findable, emptinesses. Yeah. Under analysis or anything under analysis is still yeah, findable. Yeah, when you look for it, you'll find something. Hmm. Yeah, so even emptiness. Emptiness, you look for it, you'll find something. I don't know what they find, <laughs> but <laughs> that's Kachita Matran. Well, like the person, for example. I mean, that's another powered nature. But they say, yeah, when you look for a person, you will find something. And that's coming up next. If, imputation, if existent imputational things 
don't exist by way they're their own characteristic, but yet you can find something. What are you finding? I don't know. I don't know. Like permanent, uh, um, uncompounded space. I'm not sure what they would find when they look for it. <laughs> but they just they just have this belief. You've got to find something. If you didn't find something when you looked for it, it wouldn't it exist. exist. But what they find when they look for it, not sure. They probably have some answer. They have some answer to that, but I haven't come across an explanation of that. Yeah, so it's interesting that even though they say things like the table doesn't exist externally, it's just an appearance from the mind, but it still exists truly, it's truly existing, inherently existing, existing, inherently existing, <laughs> and existing from its own side. No yeah, Gosh. well, this is why, like, the Madhyamikans, like Chandrakirti, you know, he has a huge section of his text about the Chita Mantra, and just slamming their views. <laughs> so we'll get to that one day with Geshe Lundra, <laughs> how they uh, find all kinds of contradictions in the Chita Mantra's explanation of things. Did they say you find the mind? You find the seed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they say mind is truly existing. So you look for the object. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, this, the, you know, these texts on tenets are pretty brief, as you can see. They don't go into all the nitty-gritty details. Maybe Jeffrey's books, those three huge books <laughs> about the Cheetah Mantra view, maybe they go into much more depth. Well, the Sangha, I mean, he wrote these, you know, lots and lots of texts that haven't been translated. So probably in those texts, there's these answers, but the Tenet's texts are usually just very, very brief. They just give the main points. So. Shall we move mm -hmm. on? Thank you. So yeah, just you you can get copies of this slide and, and there are these as well if you forget <laughs> what these terms mean you can always refer back to that okay so now we move on to object possessors which mainly refer to minds or consciousnesses and there's different views by the different sub-schools of chitta mantra the first is the true aspectarians. Um, so they say that there are eight consciousnesses. Um, on top of the usual six, what are the usual six? Seven, seven, seven consciousnesses. consciousnesses. All the sense consciousnesses and the mental consciousnesses. Yeah, five sense consciousnesses and mental consciousnesses. So those are the usual six that all the Buddhist schools um, agree on. So they add two more. So number seven is the mind basis of all. Um, Alaya Vijnana. I don't know what other translations there are for that. Foundational consciousness. Foundational consciousness. Storehouse. Yeah. Storehouse consciousness. Storehouse consciousness. I think that's more of a nickname. Um, Kunji is the Tibetan, Kunji number Shepa. Um, so it is more like foundational or basis of all. So that, that type of mind, um, is said to be, uh, that's where all the imprints are stored. So all these imprints, karmic imprints, as well as imprints for seeing things and hearing things and so on. They're all stored in that consciousness. And it's said to be a mind that's always there. It's constant. Um, I think even, yeah, when we're awake, when we're asleep, when we're dying, going to the next life, it's always there. And it's neutral. It's neither virtuous nor non-virtuous. And it's non-defiled. It doesn't have... Uh, it's not accompanied by any afflictive mental factors like anger, attachment, and so on. And it's said to observe 
the five sense objects. It does observe all the five sense objects as well as the five senses, but it doesn't notice them. So it's an inattentive mind. <laughs> so things appear to it, but it's, it doesn't notice them. Yeah. And Geshe Jama Tekshok said, uh, when, when somebody becomes a Buddha, this mind becomes the mirror-like wisdom. It's these five kinds of wisdom explained usually in Tantra. So one is the mirror-like wisdom. So it's the, this mind becomes the mirror-like wisdom. And it said that a Buddha, a Buddha no longer has imprints. And when a Buddha sees things, it's due to the completion of the two collections of merit and wisdom. So a Buddha sees things, but not because of imprints in their mind, but because of the accumulations of merit and wisdom. So it's non-Buddhas, it's sentient beings who have this mind basis of all with all the imprints. And then number eight is called the afflicted mind or defiled mind. And this mind observes the mind basis of all, the foundation consciousness, and grasps it as a self-sufficient, self-supporting, substantially existent self. So it's deluded, afflicted. So this mind needs to be purified, and it's said that when one becomes a Buddha, when all, you know, all the afflictions are cleared of the mind, this mind, the afflicted mind, becomes the wisdom of equality. It's another one of the five wisdoms. And um, I was reading recently volume nine, um, just checking it, and there's several chapters about Madhyamaka and Yogacara in China and how, you know, those, well, yeah, how those views came into China and how they were developed. And uh, I came across something quite interesting. I'll just read it. Um, the Chinese were fascinated with Yogacara's notion of the foundation consciousness. However, Yogacara's idea that a defiled consciousness was at the heart of each sentient being clashed with a pre-existing idea in Chinese culture that the core of sentient beings is good. Is that true? I guess that's from the Taoist or Confucius idea. Anyway, they, they, they weren't uncomfortable with this afflicted mind. <laughs> so when the Indian Yogacara master Paramartha came to China as a skillful means to make Yogacara more compatible with a Chinese view of the goodness of human nature. He taught that there are nine consciousnesses. <laughs> and this is interesting because I came across, I was reading a Zen book by a Zen teacher and, and he mentioned nine consciousnesses and I thought, what? There's nine consciousnesses, where'd that come from? So now I know where it came from. <laughs> So the ninth consciousness that he added, it's not like he just invented it, <laughs> is an undefiled consciousness. It's called Amala Vijnaya, which is a purified version of the foundation consciousness. You heard of that? Nine consciousness? You heard of it? Yeah. Okay. So um, all the other schools say there's only six consciousnesses. They don't agree with the seventh and the eighth, and they certainly wouldn't agree with the ninth. <laughs> so it's only this one sub-school. And actually it's the, you know, the other way of dividing Chittamatra, uh, following scripture and following um, reasoning. So it's said that the followers of scripture also assert the eight consciousnesses. Um, yeah. It's actually popular because Thich Nhat Hanh teaches that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Zen too. I think Zen Zen's very popular and they talk about eight lines, eight consciousness. Is that a Chandra Rupa? Mm-hmm. Hmm? Chandra Rupa. 
talks about the mind. Basically. Also, yeah, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. I read it in his books. So somehow it's in the Kargyu tradition. I don't know how, how it got in there. And then, next point is, this school, the um, Triospectarians say that the mind basis of all is the illustration of the person. Again, remember, each Buddhist school um, points to something as the illustration of the person that can be found when you search for it. So when you search for a person, you should be able to find something you can point to. And that is the person that creates karma, experiences the results of karma, goes to nirvana, enlightenment, and so on. So, yeah, so this school... Uh, that asserts the mind basis of all. Say that is the person. I guess that's a way of saying the conventionally existing person. Then the false aspectarians, they say there's just six consciousnesses, the usual six. They don't say there's a mind basis of all. But they still say that there are imprints on the mind that cause the appearance of objects as external so the imprints would be on the mental consciousness not they don't need to assert a seventh consciousness a mind basis of all it's just the mental consciousness and they say that the mental the mere mental consciousness is the illustration of the person um so in get in the cutting through appearances geshe says um, there are many types of mental consciousness, and it's not that all types of mental consciousness are the person, but um, it's a subtle, neutral form of mental consciousness that exists continuously throughout our life, and also that's the thing that goes from one life to the next, carrying all the karmic imprints because, you know, mental consciousness can include all of our thoughts and all of our dreams and all of our mem memories and so on. So it doesn't mean all of those are the person, but just this subtle type of mental consciousness. That's probably what it means by mere, the mere mental consciousness. That's the person. I guess we can do a little bit more. Um, more about minds. So there's two kinds of mind, valid and non-valid. That's like before. And then two kinds of valid minds, valid direct perceivers and valid inferential cognizers. So that's like before with uh, Satrantika. And then four kinds of direct perceivers. That's also like Satrantika. There's uh, sense direct perceivers, mental direct perceivers, self-cognizing that see just the mind itself and then yogic direct perceivers but um there's some unique views here um sense direct perceivers um the text says that they are always mistaken in ordinary beings so for ordinary beings, that means those who haven't realized emptiness, sense-direct perceivers are always mistaken. Why? Why are our... Because it existing. Huh? Because it appears to be external. External, yeah. So everything we perceive with our five senses appears externally existing, and that's a false appearance. Things don't exist that way. But this is interesting because according to Sotrantika, does anyone remember the definition of a direct perceiver in Sotrantika? Definition or the criteria of a direct perceiver? It's unmistaken. Hmm? It's mere and unmistaken. Has to be unmistaken. Yeah, so the definition of a, of a direct perceiver in Sotrantika is non-conceptual and non-mistaken a mind that's non-conceptual and non-mistaken and here this school is saying always mistaken. <laughs> sense direct perceivers are always mistaken so they they have a different criteria a different definition for uh direct perceivers um and and our text doesn't 
doesn't say anything about this, but I found in um, my, the book Mind in Tibetan Buddhism, um, it does give a definition uh, of a direct perceiver according to Chitamatra. So the definition is a non-conceptual knower arisen from stable predispositions. <laughs> I don't know why it says stable, but anyway, um, yeah, so it's just non-conceptual and it arises from predispositions, from imprints in the mind, no mention of being non-mistaken. So the Chitamatrans then, when it comes to direct perceivers, they do agree they have to be non-conceptual, but they don't agree that they have to be non-mistaken. Because sense-direct perceivers of ordinary beings are always mistaken. But I think that they must be, even though they're mistaken to their appearing object, which is the meaning of mistaken, um, they're not always mistaken to their engaged object, the object they're actually engaging in. So with a table, we, when we see the table, there's a mistake in the way the object appears, the appearing object, because it seems to be external, but it can still be correct with regard to the table itself, knowing that it's a table and not an elephant or a horse or something else. So as long as we're, you know, experiencing the engaged object correctly, then it's, it's the direct perceiver. And it can even be valid. It can be valid as well. Okay, just a bit more. And mental, so mental direct perceivers, it says they can be mistaken or non-mistaken in ordinary beings. So Geshe Jama Tikshok said the example of a mistaken mental direct perception would be, you know, after we see an object, there's this very brief moment of a mental direct perception of that object before we start having thoughts about it. And it's very, very short, very brief, but it does perceive um, like a form, a table or a flower or whatever. And that those would be mistaken because that object will still appear externally existing, even though it's not. So that kind of mental direct perceiver would be mistaken. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then for a non-mistaken mental direct perceiver, he said an example would be a clairvoyance. Uh, seeing another person's mind, because uh, he says the other person's mind doesn't appear as an external object, because consciousness never appears to exist externally. But in Geshe Zopa's book, in Cutting Through Appearances, Geshe Zopa says, some scholars say that all ordinary beings, mental direct perceivers, are mistaken because all objects appear externally existing. So even if you're seeing somebody else's mind, it, that also appears externally existing. So there's different views about that. You can check yourself when you're looking at somebody else's mind. <laughs> I mean, we think we know other people's minds, <laughs> but do we really? Yeah, so that's a very unusual experience to directly perceive another being's mind. So whether that other person's mind appears externally existing or not, we're not in any position to determine. In the book, in the book I, I missed the um, explanation of the... Um, mistaken mental direct perception so you were explaining that when we see an object there's a brief moment after we see the object with our visual uh, sense faculty and then there's a brief moment before we start to conceptualize about it and so i missed the part that was that you said right after that yeah so i think all the buddhist schools as far as i know agree with this it's explained more in the satantaka but they say that every time we have a sense perception, we see something, we hear a sound, we smell, we taste. So that's a sense direct perceiver of an object. 
And then usually we start thinking about it. We start having conceptualization about it. But in between the sense direct perceiver and the thought thinking about it, there's a moment of a mental direct perceiver of that object. Um, and it's so short, we don't notice it. And that, and that moment, that is that the mistaken moment? Yeah, so, so Geshe Jama Tekshuk said that it would be mistaken according to this school because it's, it's, it's still um, seeing that uh, or perceiving that object like the table or the flower or whatever and the object appears externally existing. So we'll have to finish there. But anyway, the last two, self-cognizing and yogic, are always non-mistaken. Um, yeah, Geshe Jamachekchok said, because um, to these, to those types of minds, objects do not appear externally existing. Any questions about that we can bring up next time, but we'll stop there. I hope this isn't too complicated. Especially <laughs> hearing things for the first time and um, so many different ideas and terms and yeah, it'd be quite usually it's good to study these topics again and again and talk about them and think about them and they slowly become more clear. So let's dedicate the positive energy, even if we feel unclear, confused, overwhelmed, but still just making the effort to learn more about our mind and about what we need to do with our mind to transform it into enlightened mind to benefit all beings. This is very worthwhile. We definitely create a lot of merit. So now let's dedicate that merit to enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forevermore.